Blog Talk Radio. I got into uh, basically dementia through my mother's 30-year journey. She started having issues in her mid-50s at my age and just recently passed away. And I felt that we really needed to connect people to resources and hope. And so that's really what Alzheimer's Speaks is about. We have developed into an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe that, again, by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with the disease continue to live with purpose. Together, we can help everyone understand the true needs behind the disease and help put the person first. At our core, we believe collaboratively we can win this battle, and we know we're making some headway because we have the honor of being recognized as the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And that has to do with you, all of our listeners, um, your shares, your likes, your tweaks, um, throwing our information out to your circles is um, really important. You see, there are so many people dealing with this disease that we don't even know because they're afraid to talk about it or they're in denial. And by having that content there, it's going to make it easier for them to reach out. It's going to make it easier to have that conversation. So be supportive of your circles and take those seconds um, to please continue to like us and share share our content, not only here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, but on alzheimerspeaks.com where you can access so much more from our, our blog and our YouTube channel, our dementia chats, which are the free webinars that we do twice a month. Again, that'll be happening a little bit later today. Um, where you can actually ask people living with dementia what's it like and join a conversation. We don't have to be behind the hidden curtain anymore. We can have a free, respectful, honest conversation of what the needs are and how we can improve this world. Um, Today we invite you to join the conversation, and you can do that a couple of different ways. You can uh, call in at 714 364-4757. That's 714- 
364-4757. And let me know um, what you, what comments you would like to have um, and what your thoughts are regarding the conversation today. We've got two very interesting topics. The first uh, half, we're going to be talking about research. The second half, we're going to be listening to a recording of um, two speeches that were made at Napa, one by Michael Ellenbogen, who is living with dementia. Uh, the second is by his wife. Both are very heartfelt, and they speak so honestly and openly to this national committee directing things for us. So it's very important for us to uh, to take a listen, and we'd love to hear hear your thoughts on on that speech. Um, before I introduce our first guest, I always like to give a couple of shout-outs to people. First, I have to give a big kudos to HealthStar Home Healthcare. They're out at our Minnesota State Fair, which I believe is one of the largest, if not the largest, fairs in the country. And for the first time ever, there is memory screening, um, free memory screening available to people. And I was able to join them out there for one day, and it was fabulous, the conversations that were being had and the brave souls stepping up to the plate and getting their screenings. Um, some had problems, some didn't think that they, uh, you know, were going to, and others were just fine. But, you know, knowing um, is such a critical critical, critical point. And, you know, some of some forms of and symptoms of dementia, you know, uh, can be dealt with. It can be dehydration and, and various things, vitamin deficiencies, uh, lack of sleep, stress, the list kind of goes on. So it's really important uh, to stay on top of that. The other um, that I would like to shout out to is the Purple Angel Project. If you're not familiar with the Purple Angel Program, go to Alzheimer's Speaks on our About page. Um, this is the new global symbol for dementia. It is free for any individual or business to use. All you have to do is get the poster and read it first, and I'll be glad to send you information on that. I also would like to give a shout-out to the Alzheimer's uh, Disease International Organization. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, go to ADI, and they can help you find one near you. If you want to uh, looking for holistic approaches, check out the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Uh, they do a lot with food and exercise and meditation. And then many people are dealing with specific types of dementia, like Lewy body or frontal temporal lobe. Um, there are national organizations for those specific types which can really help you along, or many people are just having a difficult time with their speech. And the National Aphasia Association can help you there. And aphasia is spelled A-P-H-A-S-I-A. On the social side, uh, Music First with Coral Health has prescriptions for music that can change our moods and our attitudes, um, and it's really quite beautiful. It can help wake us up, put us to sleep, eat, um, sidetrack us. Uh, again, that's Music First with Coral Health, and that's C-O-R-O. -O. Puzzle with me with Jane Snyder. Uh, you know, she had a family member who had the disease, and they like doing puzzles, but she just found them overwhelming, so she has designed 
um, smaller, more age-appropriate puzzles, less pieces, but yet bigger pieces. And then Jiminy Wicket is just such a fantastic way to engage people, um, both in school and uh, and those with memory loss and they do just a brilliant job at pulling the two the two together if you'd like more information just go to jiminywicket.com so let me go ahead and introduce our first guests here they are both with neurotrope and um we're going to be talking about research uh, for Alzheimer's and dementia today. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Charles Ramat, and he is the co-chair and co-chief executive officer, um, and he um, he's going to be explaining uh, various things to us about the company and how it works. He has an extensive operational background in general business experience, which includes biotechnology and medical devices, along with commercial financing and, and real estate, which was close to my heart, that's what I was in, and mobile communications. He was a, a principal investor and a consultant to Continental Home Loans, which was the third largest FHA originer, originator in uh, New York State with operations in 22 States. So he's got a really nice, diverse background, and uh, we're just thrilled to have him with us. So, uh, Charles, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing just great, Laurie. Thank you. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to have you with us today. Let me go ahead and get your sidekick on here, and I'll, I'll introduce him. Um, our our co-guest uh, with Charles is Dr. Daniel um, Elkin, and he is the chief scientific officer. And he has received his undergraduate degree in chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and he earned his MD at Cornell State University, and uh, finished his internship in medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. He has just such an impressive um, background here. He uh, had joined the staff at the National Institute of Health, where during his 30-year career, he became the medical director in the U.S. Public Health Service um, at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes, and also the chief of laboratory of adaptive systems. In 1999, Dr. Elkhan then became the founding scientific director of the Blanchett Rockefeller Neurosciences Institute, and he occupies the Toyota um, Chair of Neuroscience at the Institute. And like I said, just so exciting to have these two individuals with us. So, um, Dan, Dan, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, and uh, thank you for inviting us, and it's a pleasure to be with everyone this morning. Well, I'm I'm so thrilled to have you, uh, Dr. Alcon. Um, you, like I said, your your background is so impressive, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to hear what what you guys are up to because you're doing some big things. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the first question here to Charles. And uh, Charles, can you just give us a little background about the company, um, and you know? What are some of the challenges with Alzheimer's disease as a whole? Um, but if you can just give us a little background on the company first, that would be wonderful. 
Sure, my pleasure, Laurie. And, and firstly, uh, thank you for having us. Uh, my, my sympathies to you for uh, what you went through with your mother. And uh, you said to, to put the person first. Um, I thank you for all the great work you're doing. I, I reach out to all our audience, whether you're um, suffering for dementia, you're a family member, you're a caregiver, uh, every day thinking we might bring help and relief to um, all the people around Alzheimer's, uh, the people who suffer, but all the extended members of, of the family and the caregivers. Uh, is added motivation for us to go to work every day and work harder to try to find a solution to a problem that so far has had no solution. And it's because of that that we actually created Neurotrope. Um, Neurotrope, uh, which, by the way, is a publicly traded company, our symbol is NTRP, um, Neurotrope was founded uh, in 2012 and funded in 2013. Um, it's a very new company, but uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants and of research that was done for 20 years before we founded the company. First, with the testing of uh, uh, our chief drug, Bryostatin, for many, many years at the National Institute of Health and the National Cancer Institute, which Dr. Alcon is, is eminently qualified to speak about. But then uh, we licensed technology that was largely discovered uh, by Dr. Alcon and advanced by Dr. Alcon as um, the scientific director of the Blanchett Rockefeller Neurosciences Institute, or the acronym we use is, is BERNIE. And that was an institute that was named after Jay Rockefeller, the senator from West Virginia's uh, mother, Blanchett, who unfortunately uh, died of Alzheimer's and has done a tremendous and original amount of research uh, over the past many years, I believe since 1999. And in 2012, we were fortunate enough to be able to license the technology that had been developed uh, at Bernie, primarily by Dr. Alcon. Uh, and uh, our mission is to commercialize and bring to market all these wonderful patented uh, technologies for the treatment and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's that have uh, been developed in the academic setting of the uh, Blanchett Rockefeller Institute. We first uh, funded the company in uh, February of 2013, and I was one of the original investors. Uh, I'm blessed with um, not having had to deal with Alzheimer's in my immediate family, but uh, I've seen enough of it, read enough of it, of it um, have seen how it's impacted the families of dear friends uh, to realize that this is one of the um, great unmet needs in our society today, 
and I was very proud to be able to be involved in an endeavor, while it's a commercial endeavor, um, but equally important to me personally was the ability to do some good in the world and perhaps leave a, a small mark for something that could benefit mankind. That motivates us tremendously as well. Um, we did a subsequent financing in uh, August of 2013 by merging into a publicly traded company, and that's why we are public, and as I said, our symbol is NTRP. Um, uh, and in totality, we were able to raise a total of $23 million to be put into uh, specifically this type of research. Um, we've spent uh, um, the time since then working with Dr. Alcon in a laboratory he has in Rockville, Maryland, in the headquarters for the Blanchett Rockefeller Institute in Morgantown, West Virginia, in uh, proceeding and developing uh, a diagnostic product for early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, as well as moving forward with a therapeutic. Um, we have conducted compassionate use trials we have been approved by the FDA to start phase two clinical trials. Prior to that, in preclinical trials, um, using uh, animal animals, we have had wonderful results with our drug bryostatin, which are very encouraging. And the FDA has approved us to commence human trials, which we are doing. And Dr. Alcon will have much more information for the audience about those things. Wonderful. In addition, excuse me? Oh, I said wonderful, Charles. I was wondering oh, if, I, if I can um, throw a question out to Dr. Alcon here. Yeah, sure, um, please. Okay. Um, Dr. Alcon, I was wondering if you can give us a overview of kind of U.S. and global Alzheimer's therapy um, and, you know, some of the treatments and limitations that are out there right now. Certainly, um, Lori, and I think this is a good uh, segue into what Neurotrope is doing um, that, that might be important uh, in this whole uh, global program. Um, unfortunately, I think most people are aware that um, there is no uh, drug that actually has been approved for slowing down this disease or reversing this disease. And and those drugs that are available uh, that generate about $6 billion a year are mildly palliative. They give modest symptomatic relief. Um, and they, they, they represent a kind of holding pattern. But um, major drugs, uh, programs in major companies around the world have taken a certain approach, uh, it re really for the last 15 years, uh, more of what we would call a vaccine or an antibody approach, uh, because they thought, um, it was thought, that um, if we could get at the, um, the kind of red flags inside the brain, which are certain kinds of deposits that you can see, 
when a person passes on to call plaques and tangles. If they could get rid of them, they could treat this disease. Well, that has not turned out to be the case thus far. Many, many uh, trials and, and thousands of patients. Um, and it, it's not surprising because earlier, maybe 20 years ago, there was evidence um, from a number of studies, including Bob Terry in San Diego and Paul Coleman in New York and many others, um, that that the critical loss of cognitive function means the dementia itself, the loss of memory and associated uh, functions that we identify with being conscious and capable in our lives was not directly related to those red flags in the brain. It was more directly related to the wiring being lost inside the brain. So some years ago, um, starting at the NIH and then really working at the Rockefeller Institute for the last 13 or 14 years, we were going at what I might be call a more uh, uh, entitled to call a more causal or um, uh, framework-based approach, not just looking at the red flags, but looking at the earliest events, both from the point of view of diagnostics and from the point of therapeutics. What could we do to get an understanding of what's happening first, what's happening second, and what leads to it, and then maybe even deal with the underlying loss of the wiring itself. And um, that started with an interest in what was happening when we record memories in our brain. And we started that work just trying to track step-by-step what were the events that were happening when we stored memories for a long time inside the brain. And that that story led us to certain molecular events, what I would call almost a molecular switch, a switch that when it's thrown actually allows us to start tape recording, if you will. And I think the analogy is is not being stretched too much to say that. Tape recording, what's happening in our lives? That molecular event, that switch, if you will, called PKC epsilon, triggers a whole series of other switches. And what we asked is, look, Alzheimer's disease is, is a dementia, as Laurie mentioned. It's one of many dementias. But what's different about this dementia is that it can occur in pure memory loss at first, recent memory loss. Most other dementias that are not Alzheimer's disease have something else going on. You feel numbness and tingling in your fingers. You have a tremor when you reach out to touch something. You have a shuffling in your gait when you try to go somewhere. Um, You have a change in your mood. All of those kinds of other things going on signal that this dementia is not just Alzheimer's disease. It may not be Alzheimer's at all. It may be B12 deficiency. It may be hyperthyroidism. As Laurie mentioned, a whole long list of things, even depression. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, but Alzheimer's disease begins can begin with pure memory loss. And we believe that it's not by accident that it can begin that way because it actually targets those key molecular switches that we had identified in animal models as in critical events when we record those memories. So once we did that, we said, well, let's go after this to meet this huge need that hasn't been answered with the red flag approach, looking at the plaques and tangles. So we took, and I have to emphasize this, and this is the approach of Neurotrope, a 
paradigm shift. We took a totally different approach. Um, and it's worked out beyond our expectations already in the preclinical work and in these even hints of it in the clinical work. And that is that we're going to go after what's causing the memory loss and then what we could do therapeutically to correct that and even diagnostically with the same targets. So for, for, at first we developed drugs and one drug happened to be available and the National Cancer Institute was extraordinarily generous and, and collaborative with us because they provided it to us free of charge to try with not only animal models but with people. And it had been in 1,500 patients for cancer, and it hadn't worked for cancer, but it didn't cause much toxicity. It was what they call well-tolerated. So they supplied us with this compound, which is Neurotrope's lead compound, biostatin. And in addition, we've developed a whole platform of other related compounds, some of which actually may even be better than biostatin. But we treat, started treated, treating animals that had human Alzheimer genes in them so that you actually start seeing the manifestations of Alzheimer's disease in these mice that had the human genes. And to our surprise, it virtually rectified every single aspect of the disease. Not one, not the red flags like plaques and tangles, not just the cognitive deficits, the memory loss, but everything else as well, including the wiring. So it could actually stop the loss of the cells the death of the neurons, and it could induce the growth of new wiring, new connections in the, in the brain. Something, to be very honest, that 10 years ago, if you had asked me, I would have said would not be possible. Uh, it's only, and this is the nature of exploration, both in the clinic and in the commercial sector. We all have to explore. You explore with an open mind, with the possibility that something may turn up that you don't even expect. And what turned up was, that we saw that while we were getting rid of the red flags, yes, we did what the vaccines were supposed to do. We got rid of the plaques and tangles. But we also were restoring the lost wiring. So we could come in to a, an Alzheimer brain of, a, of a, a transgenic mouse that had the human gene, the human Alzheimer gene, and only 5% of people, by the way, have these genes. They're strongly dominating genes. 95% of Alzheimer's disease does not arise from these genes, but they're very useful because you can make animal models. And what we found was that all the biochemical and pathologic changes and the wiring changes that occurred with the disease were reversed and were actually normalized. So it was like one-stop shopping, so to speak. One drug in very, very low concentrations could actually reverse and prevent all of the aspects of the disease. Um, and in addition, this one drug could take normal animals and enhance the memory and cognitive function of even the normal animals. And I, I mention this because it's part of a philosophy that we have at the Rockefeller Institute and at Neurotrope. And I think it's even a philosophy at, at NIH, which is we try to do a comprehensive research program before we go into the clinic. And with that comprehensive knowledge, we then have a much better chance of having specific drug efficacy, specific results, without having side effects, because we're focusing in on the specific targets 
that actually are critical for the start of the disease. This is also why we've already completed a clinical trial of 140 patients. Uh, this is a cl human clinical trial that's already been finished, and it's with autopsy validation, which is extraordinarily difficult to achieve. It was done in collaboration with Johns Hopkins University. We had 70 autopsies. And with those 70 autopsies and those human clinical trials, we had extraordinary accuracy, early accuracy of diagnosis. Now, this is something, you uh, getting back to the global market, that the whole world recognizes, that we need early diagnosis. Major pharma understands that no matter what the answer is going to be, we're going to have to try to get at this disease early on, very analogous to cancer. Once it runs away from you, it's hard to reverse. However, our drugs do show the potential because we've even been treating severe dementia in compassionate use trials. It does show the potential of even reversing some of the loss of those wirings and, uh, and the connections and the functions that occur even in the most severe patients. So this diagnostic approach and the therapeutic approach actually target the same key switch, that molecular switch that I mentioned before that happens when we store memory. And by going after that switch, we both can recognize the disease with a non-invasive diagnostic. That means it's like a finger prick, a blood, a blood draw. Uh, you just take a very small skin sample, and then we do the rest, and it usually just requires a Band-Aid. We can then, then look at the skin cells actually almost like a window into what's happening in the brain. Because what we found is that when you see something abnormal with this molecular switch in the skin cells, it's also abnormal in the brain. And that was done and recently published in collaboration with the Harvard Brain Bank where they sent us blind samples of Alzheimer patients freshly frozen, and we measured the same loss of that molecular switch that we could see in the skin cells. So bryostatin goes after that. But here's something perhaps of interest to everyone as well. We realized that degeneration in the brain is, of course, important and poten potentially amenable to treatment, not only in Alzheimer's, but in other cases, such as in stroke, uh, tra traumatic brain injury, or even fragile X mental retardation. And we're even considering Neiman-Pick disease that there are a variety of, of circumstances with different causes, different uh, reasons for losing that wiring that we can attack with this reversal of loss of wiring approach with benefit. And we have about 10 different animal models that we've shown with the animal preclinical studies, remarkable reversal. And I'm not talking just a little bit. I'm talking remarkable. So what we, what we believe we are on the cusp of. And, of course, the clinical trials that Charles and Lori mentioned will tell the tale. But we really believe we are on the cusp of a paradigm shift, a new way of thinking and a new way of treating and a new way of diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. Wow, very, very exciting. Now, I, I know very little about the, the birostatin, and, um, but you mentioned um, – I, I thought it was fascinating with the skin cells and the brain cells um, having some correlation there. I had never heard that before. Um, can you tell us about um, the, the impact of the nerve cells and kind of the, the enzymes um, that you're working with 
um, with the Biberostatin as well? Sure. Well, first of all, it's interesting to, to know that Biostatin is not a statin, as we know. It's not something uh, that works against cholesterol. It's, it happens to have that in, that in its name. It's a molecule that actually a man by the name of George Bob Petit, the University of Arizona, discovered in, uh, in the late 1960s. And it's a molecule that is made specific by Bryce-Owens, microorganisms. And um, it is a sufficiently small molecule but complex molecule that it can get into the brain. And before... Um, at least we got on the, on the trail of all this, it was known at, to be the most potent activator of PKC epsilon ever described. The way I like to describe it is that you kind of can get a smell of it, and it has efficacy. It's an extraordinarily potent molecule. So just a little bit needs to get into the brain to do its work. When it goes in the brain, it targets very specifically PKC epsilon, this particular switch that I mentioned before. And then it sets in motion a sequence of events, a train, so to speak, uh, leaves the train house. So it's a sequence of events occurs. And these, this train actually is multiple trains. One, direct, one train is going uh, toward getting rid of the, the red flags, the plaques and the tangles. Another train is going after the loss of the wiring and restoring that wiring uh, because it activates a whole orchestra of molecules that literally build synaptic connections and wiring, which heretofore I had and many others had thought only occur in our early developmental years. But it actually can occur in adults and in people who have had, for example, in, potentially an inv invasive brain injury. And then still another train goes after some of the, the actual early events of Alzheimer's disease that precede the red flags. For example, there's an elevation of a toxic protein called A-beta oligomers. Well, our molecular switch goes directly after getting rid of those, the, uh, those early molecules. And then even still another train goes after the death of neurons and prevents the death of neurons. Now, what's interesting, it's interesting to, to consider the history of this, that originally bryostatin was thought to be potentially a treatment for cancer. And other molecules in, in related classes were thought to be inducers of it. Brastatin was unique in that it actually inhibited some of the most toxic cancer-inducing agents that had ever been described. And, and that's been shown over and over again. It's unique that, that it's true. So it was a kind of uh, uh, a major discovery when Dr. Petit found it. Um, but what, what we found and, and we've written about is that there is really a whole class of compounds that can act like bryostatin, that can activate this switch and actually prevent uh, tumorigenic changes. But instead of just, just doing that, it actually becomes what we call neuroprotective. It actually starts protecting the neurons in the brain. And it may be interesting for everyone to know, probably many of you do know, that neurons, the big integrating neurons, the kind of microchips inside of our brains, don't divide. They're among the very few cells in the brain that don't divide. And there's a reason for that miraculous design. And the reason is that each one of these big integrating neurons or microchips have an extraordinary interconnectivity in the wiring with other cells, 
so so vast is it that a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand neurons connect with each every other of those integrating neurons. So there are a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand points of connection per cell. Now, if you can imagine the combinations that can arise out of that that number, just taking a thousand such cells, you can actually do a calculation. You can actually start to approach in the number of of, of combinations from that connectivity the number of molecules in the universe. The number of combinations is what we would call almost infinite. Isn't it amazing that we've been designed this way? It's really miraculous. But it's probably part of the reason why Alzheimer's disease doesn't occur in other animals, other organisms. It's uniquely human, probably because we have this uniquely human design of the brain cells. And Bryostatin goes after those brain cells to actually invigorate them, reinvigorate them, bring them back to life, and get them to start sending out new connections. So what happens in our animal models, and again with a hint of it happening with our patients, is that they, the functions that these animals have lost actually come back with the new connections. And that's something, again, that you wouldn't have anticipated because there's enough parallel pathways, there's enough um, uh, abundance of connectivity in the human brain as it's been designed that it doesn't always have to be exactly the same pathway that was lost to replace it, the function. So new connections, new pathways can take over the ones that were lost, and that's what we're seeing. And that's what gives us hope that we're going to be able to not only, and I think this is important, not only treat the symptomatic loss, the, the symptomatic problems at the, at the uh, outset of the disease and even as the disease progresses, but to prevent the progression, slow it down, maybe even stop it, and then ultimately even restore the connections and restore the function. So symptomatic relief, prevention of the progression, and restoration of the loss is the aim of neurotrope, not only in Alzheimer's disease, but particularly in Alzheimer's, but in, in other causes of neurodegeneration, including some that Laurie mentioned, such as Pick's disease and frontal lobe dementia and for example, multiple-stroke dementia, other dementias that have diffuse degeneration of the brain may be amenable to this kind of treatment as well. Wow, that that is just fascinating. I'm going to go ahead and um, pull Charles back into the conversation here. And uh, Charles, my question for you is, you know, you guys are doing a lot of different partnerships and you've got a strategy there with the Blanchett Rockefeller uh, Neurosciences Institute and Stanford University and also Mount Sinai Medical School. Can you speak to those and tell us kind of what what your partnerships are are doing in each of those? Yes, absolutely, and and I think they're all rooted in the science that Dan was just speaking about, which, as he said, is is a paradigm shift from what's been going on up to now. Um, one issue is that since bryostatin is derived from a natural marine animal. Um, uh, should while we do have significant amounts of it and sufficient to conduct the clinical trials we have underway, um, there is an, an ultimate issue of 
is there enough of it in the world? Should we become successful? And there's a worldwide demand for it. And anticipating that, we are uh, trying to find alternate sources which would do what Bryostatin does and may even be better than Bryostatin. Um, uh, among them, Dan himself is doing research on something called uh, PUFA drugs. Uh, in addition, we have uh, licensed from uh, Stanford University, uh, Dr. Paul Wender's laboratory there that has been doing work in bryologs that are, um, uh, may create some of the same effects of bryostatin. We're not sure, but he has created some 30 or 40 bryologs uh, synthetically, and we have licensed and have exclusivity to all of those and are currently exploring the efficacy of them, uh, as well as PUFA drugs that, that Dr. Alcon is working on, and if they act the same way as natural bryostatin does. Um, as, as Dr. Alcon has also said, the indications of bryostatin are to provide efficacy in many other types of neurodegenerative diseases, and we are looking for other ways to be able to help suffering populations where there's no hope, and I'm referring to things that are called orphan diseases. An orphan disease is a disease with a small population, relatively small, and uh, oftentimes the big pharmas uh, don't allocate the resources and the time and effort to bring, bring drugs for these diseases to market because the populations are too small. Um, we found that um, uh, with uh, an orphan disease such as um, Neiman-Pick disease, which is uh, almost can be described as full-blown Alzheimer's that affects young children. And generally, it, it, uh, they, they are found to have it when they're a few years of age and generally don't live very long past their teens. Um, we believe that bryostatin can be helpful in uh, bringing relief to those suffering children and their families, as well as it can in Alzheimer's. Uh, one of the foremost researchers, researchers in the world in that disease is Dr. Ianus, who is uh, a part of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And uh, we've entered into an agreement where we've exclusively licensed all of their technology and are currently beginning uh, studies in transgenic mice to see if bryostatin uh, will be helpful in curing, alleviating, or bringing some efficacy to sufferers of Neiman Pick. Our future uh, goal, and hopefully it might be as early as next year, would be to get FDA approval to begin trials on, on humans based on the animal studies. And in orphan diseases, if you're on the road to creating an orphan drug, um, oftentimes the FDA helps expedite the process and we might come to market much quicker than we would in a traditional drug development program. 
Similarly, Dr. Alcon, as he mentioned, has been doing research for years um, on Fragile X, which is part of a syndrome, uh, which is the, uh, the same syndrome you might find mental retardation, autism, mostly affecting young boys. Uh, and we hope to be able to do the same thing and continue research with Dr. Alcon at the Blanchett Rockefeller Institute to see if ultimately we can get orphan drug designation for Fragile X. Uh, we have our eyes open for other opportunities, uh, and as Dr. Alcon said, there are various other types of dementias which are very similar to what we find in Alzheimer's disease, and we would like to use our science and technology to help as many people as possible. So that's an important part of our future program. Okay. Can you just explain to the audience what an orphan drug is? A lot of people might not understand that term. Yeah, an orphan drug is defined by the FDA as a drug that has less than 200,000 uh, sufferers in the United States. And uh, it, it's called an orphan drug because often uh, it's an orphan. It can't find a, a major pharma as a sponsor who's going to do research in it because they generally like to work in areas where the payoff is huge. And if they spend the huge amounts of money necessary and the many years of time and effort to bring a drug to market, um, they want to know there are very, very large populations who will be their customers and buy it. Um, so an orphan drug is one that has a relatively small population. Um, it can be a, a devastating disease to the sufferer and the family, and to encourage uh, companies to do research in it, um, the FDA uh, relaxes certain of the time frames and regulations that they might have in a in a more full-blown uh, drug being brought to market. Okay. So I, I have to say I'm a little confused because this market is so broad, how it could be an, an orphan drug. Well, I'm not when... saying Alzheimer's is an orphan uh -huh. drug. I, I want to make that very okay. clear. Alzheimer's okay. isn't. But the same neurodegenerative properties of Alzheimer's are found in small populations with similar diseases such as Neiman-Pick-C, which is a very specific disease. And Neiman-Pick-C is, and we're hoping to get it designated as an orphan disease and that we will produce the orphan drug for it. The same with Fragile X syndrome. So these are related to Alzheimer's, but by no means is Alzheimer's an orphan disease. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I just wanted to be clear on that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, throw another uh, question here to, to Dr. Alcon. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the, the preclinical uh, pre trial research results that you have, and um, how do people get involved? Well, um, first of all, uh, I just want to just to finish off the last question. I, I think it people should understand that the FDA is very, very um, aware and, and, and very, very closely watching um, developments, and, and including potential paradigm shifts. And if we 
to get um, early clinical success, we may uh, even eventually uh, get their help with an accelerated status for <clears throat> Alzheimer's disease. So we, we might uh, achieve that, too. That's not beyond the question. We're hoping for that. Um, and that would, of course, make our path to bringing this to, to people uh, shorter. Um, uh, when, we, when we say preclinical, we're talking really about animal models. And some of these animal models, and I really think in general it has to be understood, that it's very difficult to study any disease unless you have an animal model. <clears throat> and that you can even go to cellular models, but animal models often really open the way, as they have so, for so many years for so many other diseases, such as diabetes, such as um, infections, smallpox, etc. In this case, the way the animal models for Alzheimer's have been generated is we we actually take a human. Oh, are you still there? Did we lose you? Dan, are you there? Let's see. I am not hearing him. Let's see if everyone else is. I'm going to just switch uh, phones here. Dan, are you there? I think we're going to need to have him call back in. Let's see. Let me get Charles on the line. Charles, yeah, I'm, are you there? I'm here. Okay, we lost Dan. Um, so right. hopefully he he can call back in to the show. I I know he was having his connection was kind of coming and going. So hopefully he'll be able to call call back in uh, to the show. We've got about ten minutes left. While we're waiting for him to call back in, um, why don't I go ahead and. Um, throw another question your way here. If you can tell us about the development of the minimally invasive diagnostic biomarkers and the the analysis system, um, could you speak to that at all? Well, I I would prefer Dr. Alcon did. I I could tell you uh, in layman's terms what I understand, but I can't explain the science as, as well as he could. Okay, okay. Well, not a problem. Um, You know, one of the things, you know, I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering, how do they get involved in your clinical trials, and are any of the trials open right now? Um, Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And to conduct our clinical trials, we've uh, retained a company called Paracel, which is one of the premier companies in the United States who do this. Um, Uh The the trial is double-blind, and it means we don't even know who is uh, uh, in the trial. Um, uh, Some people in the trial get a placebo. Some get the real drug. We have no idea who gets the real drug, who gets the placebo. We have no idea what the results are. And for our first single-dose trial, Uh, which is presently ongoing, and we still are recruiting, as we will be for our multiple-dose trial, which we hope will start in a few months. Um, uh, Only when the trial is totally completed uh, do we find out what the results were. Uh, So uh, what I would do is refer anybody interested in participating 
to Paraxel, who does the recruitment. And to do that, um, you can go to one of two sources. You can go online to www.clinicaltrials.gov, and you could search Neurotrope, N-E-U-R-O-T-R-O-P-E, and you will get information how to enroll in a Neurotrope trial. That's www.clinicaltrials, C-L-I-N-I-C-A-L-T-R-I-A-L-S dot gov and search Neurotrope. Uh, another possibility is uh, one of our chief investigators at the moment, although they do change, who is working from Glendale, California for Paraxel and enrolling people in our trials. Uh, his name is Hakop Gevorkian, H-A-K-O-P-G-E-V-O-R-K-Y-A-N, Hakop Gevorkian, and he can be reached at 818-254-1600, 818-254-1600. But it's something that we at the company directly uh, to maintain total secrecy and impartiality of these tests, don't get involved in directly. Okay, wonderful. We've got uh, we've got Dr. Um, Elkan back, so let me go ahead and uh, pull right. him back into the show. Terrific! I, w- I was getting nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yeah, good. they were asking me to explain how the assays work on the diagnostic. I was about shall, to. Have shall a- I shall I do a little bit of that? Um, yeah, Lori? please, please. Yep, we've, yeah, we've got about uh, seven minutes left, so that would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the um, the animal models I was mentioned using these human genes really reproduce the picture of Alzheimer's disease in a human. It's really quite amazing. It's not perfect, but it's very close to perfect. So what, what we can do is actually see if we can treat these animal models successfully. And to my knowledge, no drug has ever uh, been so successful as this, what we think is this paradigm shift that Neurotrope is is uh, pursuing with briostatin and the related compounds. No drug does does basically address all the targets. And in addition, um, it's probably not by accident that um, we see the manifestations uh, of the the defects that we see in these animal models and in humans in skin cells as well as in the brains of human patients who've had this disease. So we can use um, the, the skin cells as a kind of um, uh, window, an opening into seeing what's happening in the brain without doing a lot of brain imaging, without doing a lumbar tap, but just taking almost like a little finger prick. We can take the skin cell, put it in a culture dish, grow them up, and then we just do a couple of little assays, and we can actually measure certain changes uh-huh. that allow us to say, oh, this individual has Alzheimer's disease, or this individual doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, some of our clinical trial data, this is with humans now, um, done at Johns Hopkins and a couple of other places, University of Texas. But with our human trials, with the Alzheimer diagnostics, we've actually seen almost uh, 100% accuracy, greater than 97% accuracy. So we can tell who has it and who doesn't have it. And we can even see if it's progressed so we can actually watch it 
get worse, unfortunately, but, see, but, but perhaps fortunately, just by looking at what's happening in the skin cells. It, it may not be totally surprising um, if you kind of look back in the early development of the human brain, because in early development, the brain actually come, arises from what's called the ectoderm, which is where the skin cells are. So the skin cells actually have the potential of becoming nerve cells. And they have a lot of the same molecular switches and enzymes that the brain cells have. And apparently, they become defective when they become defective in the skin. They become defective in the brain as well. We think this is exciting because potentially um, it's a, um, a non-invasive process. It's easy for people to get it. And, for, and furthermore, Laurie referred to something earlier in the program, which I think is critically important, that one out of three patients who have dementia don't have Alzheimer's disease. They have something else. And, and the, the diagnostic that we have helps us to discriminate those patients who have Alzheimer's from those patients who have something else. If it has something else, it's treatable. We hope to make Alzheimer's treatable as well. But uh, the, and another key thing about this diagnostic is it's oriented for early detection, not only progressed Alzheimer's, but early, event, early events in the disease. Now, we're not talking about before dementia. We haven't worked with those patients. We're talking about patients who have the early signs of dementia and cognitive dysfunction. And that, those patients can be tested with our diagnostic. Okay. Now, we do have a guest on the line, I believe, that wants to ask a question. So let me just go ahead and pull them in here. Um, we've got someone from a 215 number. You're live and on the air if you had a question or a comment. Hi, Lori. This is Mike Wambug, and I'm actually uh, a guest next, but I've got to tell you, I've been listening to this, and it's wonderful, and I'd be interested in finding out how I could be a part of this study. And uh, we just we just talked about that, but um, um, Dr. Elkhan, do you want to highlight that again one more time? Well, just to reiterate what Charles said, we have phase two trials which are going single and multiple dose. They have very well uh, um, uh, established mechanisms of getting involved in the trials. And there are actually specific clinical sites. We're expanding the number of those clinical sites. Um, and I think the, the first and foremost way is to, is to go through those, those clinical sites and get enrolled. And even in the multiple dose, there are possibilities because we have a potential uh, for doing quite a number of those patients. In addition, we have a small number of compassionate use trials going on in parallel. We're just doing our third patient. And the compassionate use trial patients um, are extremely important because they allow us to really jump ahead and treat the patient just as if we were treating it with a finished product, um, hopefully safely with the FDA's approval, um, but then giving us an idea of how to use these drugs not only in compassionate use, but in the, in the other trials. So those are the two major mechanisms. I think the one that would be most uh, accessible to you, sir, uh, would be uh, through enrollment in one of our clinical sites. Okay. Great. Wonderful. Great. Thanks, Michael. And I'll pull you in here shortly. I was looking at the wrong phone number, so I didn't recognize that that was, that was his number. Um, Michael will be joining us next. He just spoke at Napa, and that's going to be a really interesting conversation. So I hope people stay with us on that. Um, Dr. Elkan, can you talk about um, the biomarkers and the, you know, how they can contribute to early or more accurate Alzheimer's diagnosis? 
Well, you know, I'll be happy to. Really, what what it should be understood by everyone that the only definitive, unequivocal diagnosis of Alzheimer's today is by autopsy um, when a person passes and by clinical dementia when the person is alive. That's the, the sine qua non by the NIH standards. You have to have those. So in our, when I say we did clinical trials of, with more than 140 patients, we, ha- we based those on largely on autopsies. And very few trials, very few diagnostics have that level of validation. So based on autopsies, we were able to show that looking at, for example, the molecular switch that I mentioned, PKC epsilon, in the skin cells, just looking in there and measuring it, we were able to, with autopsy validation, identify those patients who, did, who had Alzheimer's. And I have to say, um, this is really something people have to understand, that in the first four or five years of this disease, it's very difficult but to make that diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease by clinical diagnosis alone. The clinicians cannot do it just directly diagnosis. They do it by a process of elimination. They eliminate other causes of dementia. And and they do it, unfortunately, in the first four years or so with a great deal of error because it's it's easily confused with other causes. That's why we need a biomarker. We need the biomarker to help patients know, to help the caregivers know, and actually to help drug companies, including Neurotrope, know that we're treating Alzheimer's patients and not treating something else like depression. Um, it, it probably is familiar to many of our audience uh, uh, members today that depression is a very common accompaniment of Alzheimer's disease. They, they coexist, and they're easily uh, mistaken for each other. So, and some people just have depression, they don't have Alzheimer's, and they start having memory loss, and they say, well, maybe I have Alzheimer's disease, but they may only be depressed. Uh, not that mm-hmm. depression is an only, it's, it's a, a, a great challenge in itself, but it, um, it can be treated, and, and often you recover from it, uh, unlike with the current status, where today, as, as uh, Charles mentioned, we have a, a huge unmet medical need in Alzheimer's disease. You know, we have... Um, really, uh, 5 million people or so in just the U.S. alone with Alzheimer's disease. It costs approximately $200 billion a year in the U.S. alone just to give care to these patients because we don't have any real drugs to treat them. In the, in the world, it costs $600 billion. And in 35 years, it's going to cost trillions of dollars. So there is an, a tremendous, it's almost like an epidemic because our aging population is starting to grow so much. Our epidemiology is growing so much that the, the, the occurrence of not only Alzheimer's disease but other causes of dementia and neurodegeneration are exploding. So this century, in my opinion, the 21st century, is a century of brain degeneration, and it must be the century where we find answers to this degeneration. And that's what Neurotrope is all about. Okay, wonderful. Well, in wrapping up, I, I do want to be able to give you a plug, too, uh, Dr. Alcon, for your books that you've written, Memory Traces in the Brain, and the, the really popular book um, as well, Memory Voices. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about each of those and how people would be able to purchase those? Well, Memory's Voice I wrote about 15 years ago, and it was it was intended to make it personal, to make my own odyssey personal, but to make uh, what memory is and the loss of it is 
personally meaningful to people. And uh, it was my attempt to do that. Um, and uh, uh, it was published and, and it was fairly widely accepted, went into paperback and published abroad as well. Um, it gives you an insight as to where we left off and where Neurotrope has begun and where the Rockefeller Institute has begun. And that's where I hope to write another book, uh, a sequel to that, um, because what I want to talk about is the the new exploding possibilities of what I think is uh, becoming a, going to become a paradigm shift, um, not only about what we at, at Neurotrope are doing, but, but what the world is trying to do in dealing with with these problems. And uh, so that next book, if, uh, if I'm blessed with those years, will be about um, the loss of memory and how we're trying to restore it. Okay. And, and how do people get your, get your book? Today they can get it on Amazon.com easily. Um, okay. It's not an active print, but, it, but uh, it's readily available on Amazon.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, this has just been a fascinating show, and I just uh, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Elkan and and Charles, uh, for being with us. This hour has just blown by. Um, I really encourage people to check out your website, and that's neurotropbioscience.com, and the the links are right there on our homepage too. And then don't forget to go. You know, if you're interested in the trial go to www.clinicaltrials.gov and then just search for for Neurotrope on that. And again, that's N-E-U-R-O-T-R-O-P-E. Any last comments that you have, Dr. Elkan? Well, I I like to think of this, and and, and I think this is a good context for saying that, that we are in a community of purpose uh, a community of purpose um, all directed against um, this dreadful disease and diseases like it. But it really takes a community of purpose um, to succeed. Um, it's not one scientist, not one person. It's not even one um, uh, kind of effort. It's, a, it's also commercial. We need commercial partners. We need people who are willing to do as Dr. As, as Charles and and his colleagues have done was just to take a risk because they think it's a good risk because they think it's a sound business proposition. So we need business partnerships. We need government participation. We need advocacy. Have done and, uh, around the world who are dealing with the disease personally. All of us are in this community of purpose, and I like to think of it as a kind of war, but a war for the real uh, problems that human beings have to deal with, not just the, what I would call, um, imagined problems that divide us uh, uh, in wars and political machinations, but these are the real problems that we have to deal with. And I'm, as one person, blessed and proud to be part of this community. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Charles, is there anything else that you would like to add? No, I just I think Dr. Alcon has said it all and said it very well. Okay, great. Well, you guys have a wonderful week, and again, thank you so much for participating in the show. You gave us a lot of great, valuable information. Thanks Laurie, for inviting us. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye. I'm gonna. Go- 
Before I go ahead and introduce uh, Michael Allenbogen, um, who is our second guest, where we're going to be listening actually to his speech that he did at Napa and having a conversation. His wife also uh, spoke there. So heartfelt. Um, such powerful, powerful speeches. And, um, you know, I hope you as an audience will want to chime in and give us your, your thoughts in terms of how do we how do we get our nation to really understand what this disease is like. Um, today, I do want to remind people that we have our dementia chats um, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 2 Central, 1 Mountain, and 12 uh, Pacific Time, 8 o'clock. Uh, that would be for London, and that is a free webinar where we uh, have our experts who are actually living with the disease. It's, it's always fascinating. I learned so much from these individuals, and I would encourage you to participate. If you're not available at that time, you can always watch them later. I will post that on the blog and also on the website. Our last one we had on August 12th, we discussed the topic of, of wandering or elopement, whatever you want to call um, exploring. Um, we talked about what the word means to experts living with the disease as well as to caregivers and care partners. Um, how do we view that word differently and how do we define it? And, you know, are there other words that maybe are more suitable? We talked about how each would um, define a crisis and it was pretty interesting how a care partner would look at it versus someone living with dementia. Um, and then we also once again touched on driving. Our last radio show was, uh, we talked about uh, keeping safe. Um, I take that back. Our um, our last show, we had um, uh, um, Nader, and he was from Age Song on, and we talked about forgetfulness, and he has such a powerful philosophy, and um, he has some homes, he does training, um, but really fascinating show. And then we also had uh, Mary Turner Archer on with Breath of Life, uh, Creative Arts, and the Power of Dance, and um, she's just doing some fascinating work as well. Next week, we're going to have MIT on, and they're going to be talking about um, food and kind of toxic foods, and then the Goodman Group's chef is going to be joining us the second half, and he's going to be talking kind of about Premier Dining and what they're doing um, for, from a dietary standpoint. Um, so lots of fun things going on. On the blog, you can find a, a nice article that our intern Michelle wrote on denial or lack of understanding. Um, again, there's information if you're here in Minnesota and want to get a free memory screening or a caregiver burnout screening, um, check uh, the article done on Healthstar. There's also a little video uh, that the news did on them. There's information on Playgrounds for Seniors, uh, information on article on Walker Methodist, who is joining up Music and Memories. That's the I pod um, program uh, to get music into the hands of those with dementia. And then there's also um, some questions that we're really looking for some feedback from my friends in Australia request your help. And so uh, check out the blog and see if you can if you can help respond to, to any of those questions. Um, I think it would be a great, great way to go. 
Our friend Michael Ellenbogen uh, really, for a lot of you, doesn't need any introduction at all. He is an advocate on steroids um, for the disease. He, is, he has been diagnosed. He's living with it. And he is not sitting still. He really wants to make a difference, and he is on multiple levels. Um, so I am just going to kind of leave it at that with him. He has a movement called the Michael Ellenbogen Movement. And uh, let me see if I can pull him into the show. My computer's being a little funny here. How are you doing, Michael? All right, Lori. How about yourself? Can you? I'm doing good. Can you set us up a little bit about this speech that you did at Napa, and then we'll go ahead and play it and um, have a conversation after we've we've all had a chance to hear it. Do you want to set it up? Sure. Sure. Uh, Napa uh, is something that I guess I've been attending now for r- roughly three years. Uh, actually, I'm probably uh, one of the few people who have attended almost all these sessions in one way or another, and I tell you, I was very excited when this was all first put together by President Obama. And, uh, you know, it's now three years later, and I was really hoping to make a lot more progress around, I guess, what's been done for this particular disease. So we had an opportunity to uh, go to this last meeting, and uh, this was actually the first time I've been able to get my wife to go. Uh, just because of her work schedule, and uh, she was willing to participate, which I was really excited about. Now, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I I was just saying, I I was just so thrilled with with both of your comments in this speech. I think it was very, both of you were very powerful and very heartfelt, and, you know, you didn't pull any punches, you know, You, you stated it clearly and and I think it needed to be needed to be heard. Um so I you know I for one want to thank both you and Sherry for taking the time, uh the money and the energy to go to Napa. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Napa, that's the National Alzheimer's Project. Um and it's it's the National Alzheimer's Project Act is what they call it uh with our government. Um so this is uh, you know about as high as you can get in terms of of talking to people. And uh why don't we go ahead and just listen to it? I'll go ahead and play it, okay? And then after after we hear you um we'll we'll talk a little bit more. We'll see if we have any questions or comments from our audience, okay? Sure. I believe words really matter, and sometimes we don't realize the hurt they may cause, especially if you are not the person dealing with this disease. I have been involved in many planning meetings that have discussed what appropriate words should be used when describing this disease. Most recently, I attended such a meeting involving key stakeholders in this arena where someone came up with the perfect term. When I heard it, a light bulb went off. Then I got to thinking why no one else has thought of this before. Now I'm hoping that you will adopt this term term for NAPA, dementia including Alzheimer's. A term I would like to remove from regular use is the word patient when referring to people living with dementia. The term slowly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and gradually they become more dependent on others. 
They are a person, not a patient. While we are on the subject of terminology, I also do not like the term caregiver. In fact, I despise it. And although care partner is better, and many others still don't like it, we are still discussing whether or not the term supporters or supporter should be used instead. I will keep you posted. NAPA has now been in existence for about three years now. And recently, they conducted a survey where 59% of the people asked thought that Alzheimer's was still a part of memory loss and related normal aging. I am not quite sure that, that NAPA's mission is, but as a national group who should be bringing change for dementia, I believe you folks are failed miserably in educating the public. It's no wonder no one wants to do anything for this cause. I have been saying for years that it's a discrimination issue, but I have been using the wrong word. I should have been saying it's a civil right issue. I should have the right to be treated just like any other person who has a disability. I should have the same rights as a person who gets funding for HIV. I should have the same rights as a person who gets funding for cancer. I should have the same rights as any other person who can drive and has a medical condition. I should have the same civil rights to decide when and how to die. I should have the same civil rights to be in control of my own finances. But because I have dementia, I have less, lost all of my civil rights and more. Can you tell me why? I lost my civil rights when I live in the United States. I did nothing wrong. I'm just a person with a disability. My wife is here today for the first time. She's the one I depend on to do the many things that I am no longer capable of. It's bad enough that I have burdened her and placed so much added stress on her. But the federal government had added even more burden and stress on her because she must fill out forms on my behalf on where my money is spent, and I think that is totally ridiculous. My personal privacy is being abused. Why is that? That just because I have dementia, I am treated differently. Does that make sense to you? I have shared the following with Dr. Gillens of the World Dementia Council. What are your thoughts on this idea? If each country was to contribute a pot of money, then offer that money as an incentive to find a cure by 2020, I think it would generate a huge amount of interest. You would attract more experience. Would it really hurt to throw something like that out there while your team is working on normal channels? I would think it would have so many people jumping into this arena based on that. I believe this is a small price to pay if we can get a way to stop this disease. When Senator Pat Toomey questioned Sylvia Matthews Burwell on Alzheimer's funding at the Finance Committee, it was clearly stated that things changed historically and such we should be changing the way we fund this disease. This is what I have been saying every time I have come here. It is time to shift some of those funds to dementia. Someone must tell Francis Collins, and I cannot understand why, when something so simple is staring us right in the face, you fail to take action. You seem to lack the courage to make the simple change. 
How many more need to suffer and die from this devastating need to die in this devastating way before you folks do your jobs? What has happened to our civil rights? Stop beating around the bush and tell them what really needs to be done and must. 100 million is far off from the real number we need. Talk about frustration. For years now, we have been saying we need at least $2 billion, but no one seems to listen to us. However, when illegal immigrants cross our borders, the president asked for almost $4 billion with no plan in place. Why do our civil rights not count? Why is no one willing to stand up for us like that? On another note, it's now been over a year since public comments have not been updated. I was told it would be resolved at one of our previous meetings. It's still not fixed as of the third of this month. And if one cannot resolve this simple issue, how are you going to even tackle dementia, including Alzheimer's? In reference to the RAND publication, Improving Dementia Long-Term Care, a policy blueprint, which will be talked about this afternoon, I would like to share with you what I had shared with the Creator. Overall, it's good, except for the fact that it looks to me that this has had only input from caregivers, which I find very sad. I believe you contributed to the problem of people who think people like me are incapable of giving valuable input. I find that most caregivers do not know what they should know. It sounds like I am frustrated. I am with Napa. I believed in all you folks, and now years later, there has been very little progress made. Let's put more passion and fire into this project. So many like me are counting on you. This is not just another long-term project. Someone recently said to me, I would never call you a diplomat. This was in reference to my speeches and speaking. I believe that is part of the problem. We all try to be so nice to each other, and we don't push for what we really need. While we end up accomplishing great etiquette at this table, many continue to suffer and die around us. Please tell them what you really want to see happen, and don't beat around the bush. Some people just don't get it easily. At our next meeting, will you allow me to have someone send a connection to you on your computer and I can bring other people virtually on the computer here, on the big screen. These are people from all over the U.S. I would like to give them each a three-minute time to speak. They are all in the U.S. and they all have been diagnosed with some form of dementia. I'm able to give you a recording to share. I'm willing to give up my time so others can be heard. Please allow the people to be heard before their voices are no longer capable of speaking because of dementia. Thank you. Okay, we will uh, continue now, Sherry. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and put us on hold here, and I'm going to pull Michael back into the conversation, and I would encourage any of our listeners to call in, um, or you can uh, you can type into the chat box as well. The number to call in is 714 three six four four seven five seven seven one four three six four four seven five seven. We'd love to hear hear what your thoughts are. Um Michael, 
Um, what kind of response have you gotten from, from your speech? I thought it was very powerful and very well done. Well, i got to tell you, it, it, it sounded that way uh, listening to it. I've never uh, actually heard myself, uh, but uh, it was interesting. Uh, i I got to tell you, Lori, I was uh, kind of taken back, you know, because many of the people came to me after the meeting from the committee who kind of felt, I guess, a little bit offended by it. And uh, I, I really didn't intend to offend anybody in any way. Uh, it, it, it's just that, as I said, you know, it, it's been three years, and in three years, I really expected the word around dementia and, you know, at least people to have an understanding in this country what it meant to have dementia and what it meant to even live with this disease. And that's what I was really so frustrated about in my speech. Nobody seems to know that today. And that's mm-hmm. a part of their mission. At least I believe that's part of their mission. And I think that's really sad that we haven't been able to accomplish that. And while I heard many excuses from the people, all I was trying to do is get them to try to really think of a new way, a new approach, because I, sometimes you have to be challenged to do things. I, I know mm-hmm. in my business, you know, there's – you know, people used to work for me, you know, that they would do certain things and all, and you challenged them, they were able to accomplish things that would even surprise me because they were challenged. And I I almost believe that the folks there have kind of become comfortable and thinking this is like a long-term project, but it needs to change. We need to make some progress, and we need to start making it much quicker. You know, it's frustrating because I know them all. You know, it, I agree. It, for me, it was very frustrating. I know them people. Mm-hmm. Let me, we've got a caller on the line. Let me pull them in and see what they have to say. We've got somebody from an 817 number. You're live and on the air. Did you have a, a comment or a question? Yes. Hi, Lori and Michael. This is Elba Roy in Arlington, Texas. Oh, hi, Elba. And Thanks I, for calling. Hi. I just wanted to say that I had tuned in and watched that the, the hearing for the full day, the day that Michael and Sherry spoke, and I would certainly encourage him not to tone down his remarks. I thought he was very respectful. I think they need to be called to account, and they need to hear from truth tellers, and it's not easy to stand up there and put yourself in the line of bullets, but... Um, Michael did that. He did it very well. His his uh, commentary was very tight. There was nothing superfluous there, and I I think it couldn't have been better. Wonderful. I I totally agree. I think um, I think the words need to be heard, and if it offends some people, you know, tough nuggies. Um, this is exactly. a serious. This is a serious project that they have been assigned, and um, you know, being diplomatic, it, you know, and doing the dance isn't cutting it. We got to cut to the chase. There are people in need, and they need to hear from those who actually have this disease. I mean, I, I don't understand um, why everybody thinks they know more than a person living with the disease. I I don't understand why we are not tapping into that base of knowledge for the person diagnosed and their family. I I just, 
you know, that's been one of my biggest frustrations with, with my journey with my mom over 30 years. And that's why I do what I do, because there are so many wonderful voices. There's so much knowledge out there. And until we tie it together, we are not going to make progress. And, and, right. and, I, and it's just like Michael said there, you know, so the, the people that, you know, that get to attend these hearings and get to be treated with, with special decorum and everything. Uh, Sometimes, you know, I'm volunteering now on uh, for age-friendly uh, cities here in Arlington, and um, I so they're doing a focus group and they're doing a study, and these researchers have been looking at the issue for over a year, and I participated in a focus group recently, and the researchers they get to fly to South Africa to present their findings. And so that's a big damn deal to them. You know, they get to be treated like experts, and they just keep studying and keep studying and keep jawboning and no action. And Michael said that to this group, and it needed to be said. So thank you, Michael. Well, and I and I think that's one of the issues that we can run across, and I won't say for for all, but it's it to me that's probably the one of the primary differences between grassroots model and academic medical models is the pace in which they can make change. Is yes, I, it's extraordinarily um, huge in terms of the difference, and for for Napa not to be not to have looked at starting up just an awareness campaign to begin with, but everybody seems to go to this grandiose plan and it has to be perfect and it's got to be this and that and the other thing. And, you know, yeah. they can't, they can't get agreement and we, they spin, um, but they're all out talking about what it is they're doing. And again, not that they're not doing some good things, but I, but I agree. There's there's a hell of a lot more that needs to be done and can be done and should be done. Um, you right. Know, you're, we're we're seeing all the states coming up with different plans now, um, which is great. Um, but again, a lot of those in my mind are moving way too slow too, um, because yes. they're they're taking. Um, you know, everything has to be research-based, and it, you know, it doesn't. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. I and get they when get you're more putting... tangled up with with the methodology they're using for research and to convince each other that it's all valid and that you know everything is validated and verified and all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and blah blah. And it's it's important to have valid data, but not at the expense of 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 doing more, you know, just yeah. studying and studying and studying. So as a result of the focus group that I was asked, asked to participate on uh, with respect to age-friendly Arlington, how to make Arlington more age-friendly, and it was led by a Ph.D. researcher from the University of Texas at, Ar at Arlington here in the sociology department. And... Um, uh, I, there were about 20 of us that were there, and then some of us decided we did not want to let our ideas uh, die there, and so we started a grassroots movement, and it grew from seven people to now we have 34, and we've been there for, we've been 
uh, working together for less than a month. And I threw up a website and I threw up a Facebook page and um, we're going to visit an Alzheimer's uh, laboratory tomorrow, actually over in Fort Worth at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. And I'm taking a group over there and we're going through that lab. I have no idea what we're going to see, but it'll be interesting. It was the, the 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 guy that runs that lab is head of the neuroscience department there at the University of North Texas Health Science Center, and he spoke before another group I belong to, and he's the one that was saying you can only um, you know diagnose Alzheimer's at autopsy and blah blah blah, and he was standing saying this to all these administrators of nursing homes and stuff. And I said, is that really true based on the the Nunn study and, you know, the Dr. Peter Whitehouse's book and blah, blah, blah. Can you really tell? Because Dr. Whitehouse, who's done that for years, says no. And he backed right down and he said, well, you make a valid point. Can't really tell. You know, but he said mm-hmm. three or four things there. But he runs this lab and he was generous enough to invite me over to have a tour, and I'm taking a gang of people with me, so it'll be interesting. So that's really all I wanted to say, though, was to thank Michael for taking the time, making the effort, and uh, uh, to represent everyone so well. Yeah, it's 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 so important, so important. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to call in, Alpha. Michael, do you have any comments? No, no, I just thank you for the comments, though. Okay. Okay, then. Good. Great. Thank you, Alva. Okay. Bye. Let's, I'm going to try to see. Uh, I haven't done this before, so we'll see. But I think I should be able to push and continue, and we'll be able to hear Sherry's comments because they were so heartfelt as well. So let's hope this works. It doesn't look like I believe it's work. words really matter. Oh, it's not going to work. It won't let me get back. I can't maneuver it. So, dang it, I should have played it all at one time. So that was my fault. Um, Sherry's comments are are so absolutely wonderful. I thought I was going to be able to go back and just continue on, but it, it pushes it back. So I apologize on that. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what all Sherry talked about um, she, I know she really talked about finances and how it affected your family, and um, it, it was just so raw and so honest. Uh, unfortunately, I can't, Lori. I, I know she talked, you know, about issues related to, you know, how, you know, she noticed me being different, uh, <laughs> and was trying to really share that with, uh, I guess, the committee there because the committee sees me, and they really don't really see my issues with dementia you know they they see me as a normal person and that's the problem with this disease you know you you see so many of us and we don't look like we have any issues but yet we struggle so greatly and i think that's one of the things that she tried to point out to them is that there is another side of me uh yeah so you know there was also some issues i think she tried to clarify in reference to the financial side of things of uh why i was pointing out why the government uh, was basically making us do things that we shouldn't have to do. And what she was trying to clarify was, you know, uh, 
because I am on the disability with this disease, I I had no choice, believe it or not. They actually took my rights away from being able to uh, manage my own finances. And the government took that completely away, and they appointed my wife as the person who's responsible for doing it. So because of that, she now has to fill out these forms on a regular basis where my money is being spent, which put, creates a lot of burden on somebody when they're already overburdened. Mm-hmm. Well, the funny thing is we we got a call once on a Saturday, believe it or not, from the government wanting to know on the paperwork my wife submitted a year ago. And he says, something's wrong with the paperwork because the money didn't balance out of what we spent, of, you know, what we spent. And she goes, what do you mean? She goes, well, you spent more money than what we gave you. And it's like, yes. Who who can live on what you gave me? You know, of course it's <laughs> going to take additional funding to come out of somebody else's pocket. She goes, well, you can't show that. It's like, it, it, it's just stupid things like this that the government puts on people and adds the extra stress on top of it. And again, not to mention the stress it added on me. I was not prepared for them to have to take for somebody to have to take over for me. I'm still capable of asking somebody for help and to help me to get there. Don't mm-hmm. just say I can't do it and I can't make a decision. So it's things like that that I think people need to revisit and relook at. Yeah, I I agree. I so agree. I feel so bad. I can't get. Uh, get her on here um, without listening to your whole part all over again, and I, I we just don't have time to do that. But I am going to try to post this. Um, it's a, a little bit difficult um, to do with the blog just because of, of an audio, but I'm going to see if I can if I can get this on here somehow um, because I've got it on my computer. There's got to be a way I can I can finagle it um, to be able to just hear that particular. Um, well, I can put the whole thing on so people can can hear it all over again. But you know, Sherry just talked so openly and honestly about you could just hear the pain in her voice and the frustration of how difficult and challenging it is to to work within the system. You know, the system just isn't it. Like you said, it just it's adding burdens instead of instead of taking them away in a lot of aspects and with with all of the levels of of loss you know that you're all dealing with and regrouping um you know it's 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 got to be hard it's got to be very very difficult and um i so appreciated her her honesty and again taking the time off work to to go and um you know spend your own money and be on your own dime um, to go before our government and and let them hear, um, I, I wish I wish there were more voices um, that could be heard. Um, do you plan on speaking again in the future, or how, or is there a way others can get involved, Michael, in terms of speaking at Napa? Sure, anybody can go. Uh, the, the problem is the expense. And, and to be very honest with you, my last request to them was to try to be able to bring other people to the table by hopefully videoing them like a YouTube and presenting it to them. Well, I just got the answer to that 
the other day, and to be very honest with you, I'm upset with that answer they gave me. They don't want to do that. Uh, they're saying that would not be fair to other people, and they're, what they're referring to, of course, is people who don't have the disease. But as I told them, I said a lot of these people who, you know, who are trying to advocate and to make awareness about this, a lot of them can't even write anymore. So it, 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 they're lucky to be able to speak, to at least get the words out and say something. But, you know, it, it, it just kills me inside, Lori, when I hear things like this, because it's about being fair. But somehow, because we're being fair, people like me and others lose out. And mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't know how we correct this system. You know, as I try to tell the lady... You know, if you're in a wheelchair, we have all kind of things for people like that. We have ramps. We have automatic doors. We have special things that handle and allow people to deal with that. But yet you have dementia, and nobody wants to make any kind of special allowances for you. They they, they make it sound like they're they're doing us a favor or that we're taking away from somebody else in order for us to be able to just continue life as normal, which – isn't even normal, but it's as close as normal as we can get if we can even allow to have some some flexibility. But they don't want to do that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm very upset about that. And the other thing they also made me aware, which is also very frustrating, you know, until now they've always given me the flexibility of five to seven minutes to speak. Well, they're now going to make it going forward two minutes, period. Uh, they, they made me aware of that the, the other day. So – I mean, is it worth it for me to spend all this money to go to there when all I'm going to be allowed to do is speak in two minutes? I mean, it, it, ta- it takes me so much longer just to, to, you know, to, to get out, and that's not even enough time to get out what you need to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and it, it needs to be it needs to be heard. I, I think, like you said, they may they may not have liked what they heard, but but you know, somebody's got to say something. Um, it, it isn't functioning the way the people expect it to. And, you know, we we have a lot of expectations. We have a lot of needs, and they do need to be addressed, and they need, they need to be um, considered. And um, But first, they have to be heard. And they, they should be, I mean, if they're really going to go about creating awareness and uh, comfort, then all voices need to be heard and, um, and, and they need to be taken um, seriously. And, and, you know, uh, it's not about perfection. You know, if, if things aren't going down the right path, then, you know, you adjust the path. Um, but we live in a society that's full of blame and, and shame and, and, you know, we were driven by guilt and, you know, we got to get past that. We have to just start making progress and know that pretty much anything we do is going to change. You know, it's going to ebb, it's going to flow. And, you know, push the perfection aside and trying to get, uh, you know, 100% of people to agree to anything and just start um, to see where you can make change and how it's going and learn the lessons from that instead of um, making things so dang complicated that we, we don't get much done. Um, the chatter isn't enough. 
you know, we need actions, um, and we need an action plan that's that's significant um, and that can really help people. And they have to start taking into account the the social models of care, um, not just the research um, and the the pill. You know, I think all that stuff is great, but there's so much that can be done from a community um, stance and an educational stance um, to help remove the fear and the stigmas. Um, and when you do that, when you become collaborative, um, people get a lot more creative and they can get a lot done with a lot less if you would just allow them to try. And to me, I guess that's one of the problems that I see is they're not allowing people to try. You know, they're really not bolstering that um, to, to, the, to the level I guess I would personally like to see it as well. But, um, you know, maybe that's just me. If there's other callers, uh, you know, or listeners that would like to make a comment, please feel free uh, to utilize the chat box or call in at 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. I think I have it figured out how I'll be able to get the recording on the blog, so we'll keep my keep my fingers crossed and ask everyone else to send my send some prayers that way because I would really love people to to hear um not only you Michael but but your wife Sherry and um your really profound um speeches that you gave at the National Alzheimer's Project um I I can't thank you enough um for all that you do in trying to represent those living with the disease is there anything else that you that you want to add at this point? Well, in reference to the comments you just made, Lori, I, I honestly believe part of the problem is that the people who are on the committee do not feel like they have the power to make the change. And I, I really disagree with that because that's why President Obama assigned them this major task. And mm-hmm. some of so many of them that I speak to feel empowered. And that's what they need to change. They need to change that attitude to say, hey, I've been put here for a reason, and I need to make the recommendations, and I need to make the hard decisions of what has to be done. And people need to keep pushing those things. Because when I spoke with some of those people, you, you could hear the frustration in their own voices of things that they felt they tried to do but were not successful at doing it. And I, as I always tell people – if somebody stands in your way, you find a way around them. You you, you know mm-hmm. you jump over them. You, you you figure out a different way to do it. And I and I can understand where people get disappointed over things, but that's not to say that it can't be done. It's just going to be harder to do it. But there's a way and there's a will if you're willing to try to push the envelope and think outside the box. And that's what I believe is not occurring. They're they're running into some struggles at the first level that they're going to. You know, one person blamed it on the Secretary of Health, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that it's all at that responsibility's hand. Well, that may be true, but there's got to be a way around that. If you feel the person is standing in your way, and if enough of you believe in something, then find a way around that. I mean, hey, write to Congress as a group if you feel the Secretary is standing in your way with the decision. You know, 
there, there's ways around things, and, and that's all I'm trying to get to them across. And for the people who are listening to me here today, I encourage them to express their uh, thoughts with NAPA. And the way they can do that is they can send an email to this particular email address. It's NAPA at HHS.gov. Again, that's NAPA at HHS.gov. Please tell them what you would want to see to happen for dementia or what are the issues related to uh, dementia or, or, you know, your dissatisfaction if there is any or what you even like about them. But I think it's important for people to start being involved and to get their messages out there too because we sure aren't going to be able to do it by videos anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I I agree. I agree. It was you know, it's just it's so it's just so frustrating. You know, that this is a ticking time bomb here and more and more people are are being affected all the time and we just we have to figure out a way to work faster and smarter and and I think the way to do that is to share knowledge and to get rid of some of the bureaucracy instead of adding to it. Um and I and I know that that's not an easy thing to do, but um, but it needs to be done. Uh, you know, you look at the Purple Angel project that you know somebody with dementia started over in the UK that's gone global in you know a year's time, and the massive input that that's had with with very little funding, um, I, it's incredible. And and you look at you know where we're at here, and and what we've accomplished. Um, you know, in in my eyes, we really shouldn't be proud. You know, um, we have a lot of work to do. And again, that's not to be disrespectful for all of those working hard out there, but um, there's just so much more that could be done if our if our government gets on plate with with the true needs of this disease and um, and really starts embracing the public at large in terms of of how to make a difference. I mean, look at the ALS you know, bucket thing and what they did with with just a silly campaign and the funds that they've raised. You know, get creative. It's time to get creative government. And, um, and you know, we, we've got to move forward. We just, we have to. And we have to move forward at a, at a much stronger pace um, and a smarter pace than, than what we are. That's for sure. I did figure out how to get the uh, the audio onto the blog. So as soon as we're done with the radio show, I'll push the button and push that out, and people will be able to go to the blog post um, to be able to hear um, both Michael and Sherry. Uh, Michael's speech is first, and Sherry's comes right after that. Um, and we'd love to hear your comments through the blog. I, again, I apologize. I, I messed up and wasn't wasn't able to do that here on the radio show. Um, so, Michael, once again, thank you for all all that you do, and I hope you're going to be able to join us this afternoon on Dementia Chats at three o'clock uh, uh, Eastern time. There. Will do, Lori, and thank you again oh. for having me. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and just give a shout-out again to some organizations. Um, the Purple Angel Project, again, if you're not familiar with it, it is um, the new global symbol for dementia. It is available for anybody to use. All you have to do is read a brief poster. It's not about knowing all the answers. It's just about becoming dementia aware, something very simple um, that doesn't have to cost anything anything. You can use it in email signatures on Facebook pages, Twitter. Um, it is absolutely endless. If you own a company, you can use it for, uh, you know, just add the symbol next to your logo that you support dementia. You'll get people asking, what is the symbol? And that's a perfect opportunity to bring up a discussion on on dementia. What is it? Um, who's affected by it? This is the way that we make change by having a, a simple conversation that people can understand. For those of you who are looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, go to Alzheimer's Disease International. If you're looking for some holistic ideas in terms of um, dealing with the disease, check out the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They do a wonderful job talking about uh, the the pillars for food and exercise and meditation. Uh, Alzheimer's Disease International be, will be with us in the month of September. They are going to be um, releasing a new study on, um, you know, what you can do to help prevent this disease. So I'm, I'm excited to have uh, the executive director, Mark Wartman, on with us in September. Uh, if you've got Lewy body or frontal temporal lobe dementia, both of those organizations um, ha have national organizations that you can tap into that can help you with specifics. Same with the National Aphasia Association when people are having a difficult time with their speech. And don't forget about Music First with Coral Health. They write pers music prescriptions that can really help change somebody's mood. Um, it can help put somebody asleep, help them wake up, help them with uh, eating, um, shift moods. Music is so powerful for all of us, and it should not never be underplayed. And then, again, from a recreational standpoint, Puzzle With Me and the Jiminy Wicket uh, Croquet Program. Last, I want to give out kudos once again to Hellstar Home Health, who's out at our Minnesota State Fair and just doing an absolutely fabulous job engaging people, talking about dementia who's been affected and how how it has affected them. They're doing memory screening and also caregiver burnout screenings. And I was out there on Thursday. The response was absolutely fabulous. We really weren't sure how many people that we were going to um, have with us um, out there. And it was phenomenal and continues to be phenomenal. They will be out there through the fair. They're out on Dan Patch and Cooper right across the street from O'Gara's there. So until next week, um, you have an absolutely wonderful, wonderful week, and um, we will talk soon. Again, the blog uh, I will post here shortly. We'll have the whole speech for Michael and Sherry Ellenbogen. Um, very, very powerful speeches, very honest. I would love to hear your comments. Um, and um, 
You know, Napa needs Napa needs to hear the voice of those living with this disease. So I appreciate them for giving uh, the platform for Michael and Sherry to even speak um, to begin with. So um, please don't think that I uh, discredit what it is they're doing. I, like Michael, just think that uh, things could be done a little bit different and a little bit faster uh, so we could see a little more progress. Till next week. Have a blessed day, and remember, Dementia Chat starts at 3 p.m. Eastern Time today. If you'd like to talk with our experts living with dementia, those are free webinars. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and just scroll down the page to click to find where you can enter or to watch any of the old episodes there as well. Thank you so much, and have a brilliant week. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.